we are living in someone's false ARG. This is what the Great Reset is. They're just creating what they want the next story to be. And we also are seeing the revealing right now to understand how this 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 realm works so that we can walk through it with, with greater awareness and consciousness. So then going back to the whole thing of like, you know, why does mysticism work? Why, does, why is synchronicity important? Why is looking at rivers, looking at where you are important? Because that is a baseline reality, which is deeper than the ARG. You are going to connect to something. That is the human experience. Mark, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good. How are you? I am doing well. It's a beautiful day out today. I'm sitting on the porch in Baltimore overlooking Gwen's Falls, so I can't I can't complain. Right on. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've had a pretty good day. I've been getting in the swing of waking up earlier, so... Just... What does that mean for you? <laughs> that means instead of waking up at 11 a.m., it means waking up at 8 a.m., which is way earlier than I've been <clears throat> waking up lately. So, yeah, just getting back to a, a more normal schedule now that it, the weather's warming up. I hear you. It's warming up where you are in Connecticut, too. Indeed. That's good to hear. So, so we... what have you changed when you go to bed? <laughs> yeah, that that definitely was the... It's it depends on what night of the week, but yeah, for sure. Some nights of the I week get, I stay up into the wee hours and finish up work and whatnot. So I don't, you know, that we're we as human beings, we're not supposed to be sleeping eight hours, nine hours a day. Well, I recently. I forget who I was having a conversation with, but they said Tesla slept, Nikolai Tesla only slept three hours a night or maybe even less, but is it six hours? That is... No, I, I think it's more so, uh, I, maybe I misspoke when I said that. Maybe, I mean, whatever the total will be, the total will be, but those big clumps of time, like nine hours at a stretch, eight hours at a stretch, right. like sleeping it in like spurts, like maybe like three hours here, Four hours there. It used to be, ah, someone was telling me the story, and, and it, it ties into the introduction of caffeine to the collective consciousness. But people used to get up all the time, like at 2 o'clock, like everyone in the household, 2 in the morning, and they'd come down and have like a, do some work uh, or like eat a little bit of food. And then if I recall correctly, it's usually after that, that handful of hours you might sleep from like 10 to 2 or something, that then after you eat, then, then you do creative work. Right, because there's something that happens to us with with within consciousness. Where like that's a really good time for that type of work, and and at that without having any sort of real light, maybe not being able to be outside per se, 
find other type of work, work which would be which which could be more of a creative nature. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm almost certain that in other cultures to this day, that's very normal. You know, like taking a small nap at night and then a small nap during the day. You know, small being like two to three hours. I'm almost certain that you know it's kind of an American or maybe at least a Western idea to, well, not an idea, but a practice to sleep in those chunks. Like the way our day has been divided up is very much a product of the industrial revolution. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, you you could look at all the different sort of the measure of cultural structures, whether that be education or whether that be particularly the, the industrial revolution workday, the typical, uh, nine to five or whatever that would be. Um, but that's changing as well, right? You know, we're in that mix. Like now everyone's going to be working from home. And and so so the one thing which we can say for certain is that those structures are rearranging right now. And it's probably uh, a good thing to look at your own natural sort of – like the, the dance, at least in my opinion, is your own natural rhythm, you know, when it is that you would sleep or not sleep. And then whatever it is – you have to do during your waking time how to make those line up. So that's been my experience. I've been sleeping. I've been I've been a daily napper for at least twenty years now, maybe even longer. I'm a big proponent of that. Now, when you nap, do you find yourself more active right afterwards? Like immediately, you're into you know because I find that when I just sleep one for one length of time and then I'm awake for one length of time and that's my day. The wake up time is usually, you know, 30, 45 minutes because I'm sitting there and I'm feeling like, you know, groggy. I want to stay in bed. I want to, you know, go back to sleep. I feel like in my younger days, we'll call it because I'm still very young, but when I was uh, way more active and doing martial arts and wrestling, I would have weekends where, you know, we wouldn't have practice and I would sleep during the day and at night. And I remember waking up around like 6 p.m. and you get this feeling of like confusion because you fell asleep and it was light out and now all of a sudden it's dark out. It's only 6 p.m. or so because the sun sets earlier in the, the winter and then you're like, oh, geez, did I sleep through the whole night, and then you realize, oh, no, that's 6 p.m., not a.m., <laughs> you know? And and I always found myself, like, awake into, you know, 3, 4 a.m. when that would happen, when I would have, like, a an afternoon nap. So, I, in my opinion, I mean, obviously, I'm not, like, a, a sleepologist, but I have, I have talked about this to a lot of different people. I certainly have my own opinions and I have my own experiences. So I'm going to answer from, from, the, from, from that perspective. So part of it, I think, has to do with, with natural rhythms. And so when we begin to play around with how we sleep, like if you're not used to taking a nap every day and then you take a nap in the day, well, I think that's going to have a much, a much bigger kind of, you're going to feel that more. It's going to have a bigger impact. And when someone begins a more regular like napping or, or, or a variety or having more than one time during 
during a 24-hour period in which they sleep, that once that's established, then, then things in the body start to regulate. That being said, I know some people have a real trouble napping during the day because they get into a, a depth of sleep, which is really hard to come out of. So when they get up, they're groggy for a good hour, 90 minutes after they woke up. And I don't think that really is not, has not been my experience. I'm a, you said, you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned when you were younger in energy. I can remember the first time I ever took a nap. I was in college. So I was probably like 20, 21 years old and thinking it was so strange because it felt so good. And I was thinking about like, you know, baby's nap and, and, and not really having the perspective of, of why napping would be good for anyone else. And so probably around that time is when I began experimenting or starting to work napping into my, my daily life. But then it didn't, not until some period later did it become regular. I, I find that my, my sleep in naps is different and better, or my sleep during the, during daytime is better than and different than when I go to bed when it's dark out. I fall asleep easier. But typically I, I'm in the, I forget the name of the word for it, but it's in that kind of twilight space where it doesn't really feel like you're asleep, but when you wake up, you can tell you are. And whenever I come up, come out of that, I always feel more and way, way more energized than I do beforehand. And that might only last like 20 minutes or so. But if I sometimes get into a, a longer nap and I get into a deeper level of sleep, there's this thing which I like to refer to as like, you know, literally waking up on another planet, which is probably that feeling which you're describing of a disorientation, a disorientation, which is unlike anything else I feel when I get up. And I kind of like it. I kind of like that disorientation. Where am I? What time is it? How right. did I get here? <laughs> and, and it takes a little bit of time for you to come back and it's, it's, it's strange. It feels weird. And, but I kind of like that weirdness. But what I've never had happen to me, or I don't recall ever having happen to me, is the sensation of going, taking a, a nap when it's daylight out and then waking up and it was dark out. And I think that would be even more confusing and more, would add to that disorientation. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I definitely... I, I recommend it <laughs> if you haven't. It, it it was purely because, yeah, I was just doing a lot. And I would be so exhausted after the week that, you know, on a Sunday I'd just be napping in the afternoon and waking up after dark. But we had some unfinished topics last week that uh, well, let's pick up where we left off. Yeah, I wanted to ask you to pick up where you left off if you remember and I believe You're going to have to bring me up to speed. Where do, where do we pick up? So, what I had to bring up was the Herkimer basketball connection and what Ooh, you yeah. what you wanted to go further into was the Ukraine sort of Russia sort of energy to your trip through St. Petersburg because we talked a lot about the Skittleville, as I called it in the episode title, but we we didn't get to that part of your journey. And considering so we didn't get to the St. Petersburg part, right? And it was only a couple of days ago that we talked last, so this will be a good uh, good so, okay, two let's, episodes. Let's let's, let's talk. We'll, we'll, let's begin a little bit with St. Petersburg, then we'll move into the the basketball and the horse. So. 
St. Petersburg. Let's first paint out where St. Petersburg is. St. Petersburg is a city in, on the west coast of Florida, on, on the Gulf of Mexico. Well, really on the tip of a peninsula. It's a, a peninsula that points south. Right. And so the tip of that, that peninsula. And so it's actually like, depending upon where you are in St. Petersburg, I guess, you could be facing the Gulf of Mexico or you could be facing the 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 Tampa Bay and the city of Tampa on the other side of the bay. And traditionally New St. Petersburg is has had the reputation of being very, you know, incredibly I can't think of the, what the word would be, but everyone is like really, really old. I think they used to call it Heaven's Waiting Room. <laughs> you know, where everyone's waiting around to die. <laughs> right. So so it, it's had a big change, I think, in the last twenty or thirty years, I would guess. I mean, I don't know. I've only I've only gone there three times in the last five years, but this would be my take if someone pays attention. So you got the St. Petersburg, that's kind of where it is. And the reason why uh so St. Petersburg I think is interesting, particularly in this dream walking sort of perspective, because there's this 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 triple hit. The first is I began here in Baltimore in this house, which overlooks this park. And the park was once the estate of a guy who made all of his money building a railroad from St. Petersburg, Russia to Moscow, Russia. So you got that. And then we have the the hit with the fact that though, you know, though, though it's not necessarily St. Petersburg is not Ukraine, but it, it feels it fuels into the Ukraine Russian narrative which is at the peak of the collective consciousness at this particular moment. And then lastly, there was this very grassroots, authentic bringing me to St. Petersburg. Like I wasn't, I didn't go to St. Petersburg because of all of that. There, in fact, when I went down to Florida, when, when we had that conversation, when I was driving down to Florida, I was planning on just being in the villages for the entire time. So St. Petersburg was not even that, like it was, it was a potentiality, I suppose, because I knew I was a handful of hours away and my sister lived there, but it wasn't necessarily like part of the, the definite structure. So it, it unfolded more naturally. So I go to St. Petersburg after, after a handful of days, after a handful of days in the villages, I wanted to period something new. And I arranged with my sister to come and stay with her. And understandably. It, <laughs> it, it it was it turned out to be such a um it was so much fun it was so much fun and a lot of it was like uh things were, were really easy with me and my sister and her new husband who i had not met yet and it was i was staying in his home you know my sister moved in with him and so i'm kind of like the black sheep brother of of his wife who didn't come to their wedding and and you know, I kind of show up on and out like, hey, can I crash at your pad for a couple of days? And so I'm aware that that could at least be the perspective in which in which my arrival would be met. But it wasn't met that way at all. The guy was fantastic. We had a lot in common. We were out and we were like playing Frisbee and, and cornhole and we went to the beach and just like it was really, really a nice. It was a nice surprise because I was not anticipating having that to be part of it. So. So that played into the story, and and the guy was he's a he's a biologist by professor by profession. He teaches biology at a college. I guess you call that a biologist. I guess you call him a professor, a professor of biology. But anyway, so I had like these fascinating questions where I could ask him, or these fascinating conversations where I could ask him all of these sort of questions I had about the natural world, and at least I could hear the opinion of someone who 
who is in our culture is marked as an expert. So I was asking all about like parasites and like how they work. Cause that, that was an area which he's particularly knowledgeable of, but that's not really the comparison. That's more of like the backdrop of, of what I gathered or what I was really noticing in St. Petersburg. So St. Petersburg is a pretty big area and the location of the house where I stayed was about a five, 10 minute walk from downtown St. Petersburg and downtown St. Petersburg is, um, I mean, if you can imagine it is, it's got a, it's got cities or it's a city, an urban like feel there are high rises that are there, but it also has this, this, you know, this beach like climate. It's South, it's in Florida. You know, it's not exactly Miami, but it has like that sort of feel of a big city, which has, the really warm weather and how it shows itself in St. Petersburg is one, it's very popular, I gathered, with affluent Eastern European travelers, you know, millionaire, leisure class folks of of Russia and all of the mm. Ukrainian type area. Like they're there and, and it's got this, like there's a look, like if you, if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen it, there's this, there's a way which they dress, they carry themselves. Is if you're like you know if you're a if you're a a, a billionaire European Eastern European Russian sort of oligarch you know this is how you dress and this is how you carry yourself and then you've got the trickle down all the people who who aspire to be oligarchs or be of the leisure class and so St. Petersburg has this I mean the best way I could I at least I frame it up like how I I would frame it up is I picture it if, if you want to have an image of your mind, it's like what you think of Beverly, the TV show Beverly Hills 90210 or whatever, like Rodeo Drive of this this very kind of um, affluent, aloof, the world is my oyster sort of place and an entire culture, at least a subculture, which values more than, I mean, our entire system values money but this is the peak of that of that pyramid so you know the millionaires are envying after the multi-millionaires who are right. envious and jealous of the hundred millionaires and there is just this 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 it's it's just written into the landscape that that this is the value system in which in which this world rolls and it is at the top of the it's at the top of the of the heap because and it's beautiful. Like it's 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 beautiful. And you've got like all of these restaurants and like cigar bars and like trendy little places like lining the streets where you could sit outside because it's so nice and you can see the water. Like it's just asking for that type of of expression. And at the same time it also because there's so much affluence, there is a a large value on the art. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of museums and they recognize the importance of the, of just being outside because it's so friggin' nice there and the trees are so spectacular. So to kind of bring this into like a comparison. So it's like the trip for me was Crimea to, to the Potemkin village to then St. Petersburg, you know, Baltimore, the villages and, 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 and St. Petersburg, and I'm seeing these three different sides of really the same die. And probably, whereas, whereas the villages 
is completely Skittlesville. It's completely this Disneyland where it is every every street, every every building, which is, every every amenity which is part of the villages had been thought out and been planned out by a developer, and like you know, there's there's no authenticity to it. So compared compare it was it's completely scripted. So compared to that, like St. Petersburg has like an authenticity. Like, you know, it 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 began as something else and now it's going through this other wave of like, you know, all of this investment which is going on. So there's a level of authenticity to it, I suppose you could say. But then on the on the flip side, like it's also like, you know, the the fakest of it all. And so now we compare this to Baltimore, which is which has like true authenticity, like in the fact that what you see is what you get and where you stand with someone for the most part is exactly where you stand with someone, but it's ugly as can be. And you know, where at St. Petersburg, there's no trash anywhere and, and, and there aren't cars broken down on all the streets or, you know, maybe parts of St. Petersburg are, but like at least the, the, the part which I was like, that was just like, we see this, we see this, we don't see that in St. Petersburg. And you could also look at, at one of the flavors which really would describe particularly more of the, the, the down and out and the, the rough and tumble and the working parts of working class parts of Baltimore is like when you'd see something like the St. Petersburg, you'd be like, you know, that's what I strive for. I want all of that glitter and all of that, all of that, all of that pizzazz, but it is empty and sick as anything else. But that's like kind of like that carrot on the stick. And I know that St. Petersburg is just going to be, is another boom town because all of these things are boom town because they're built upon, they're built upon this kind of, this, this, I mean, that's just the nature of, of what our, our financial industry is made of, but then also we can see it with the culture. So the ability to go and see these three, like one right after another, and particularly in light of all cultures changing right now. I mean, this is, and, and it's not, it's, it's in every sort of way. We began our conversation, which we're having right now, talking about sleep and what's natural, what's like the, the most natural way for a human being to sleep in terms of the amount of sleep and in, in schedules. And we said like, what's going to change again? Because now as everyone is, is, is at least I'll say it this way, they're given the opportunity to have a new type of quote unquote work life. Well, guess what? They're going to be working at different times and maybe they're going to be adopting like, you know, it's not that nine to five job. It's this, you know, this gig economy. Everything is becoming different nowadays. Well, everything is becoming different. Everything is, and we don't necessarily, particularly those of us who have some degree of awareness of what is unfolding. We might not know what it's unfolding to, but we can see the writing on the wall, and we can begin to ascertain and you know what would be real and what is fake, what is ball, what is edenic, you know, whatever words we want to use to describe it. Like utilizing this these sort of comparisons by looking at what we have been born into, what we have been given, and so that we can take these lessons as we move on to creating, like, you know, something which is much more in harmony, both with being a human, both with being living on Earth, 
And then also like living with other human beings. Like what does that really look like? You know, not everyone's going to go and move to a commune or, or somewhere in, in, in the, the jungles of Peru. You know, not everyone has that opportunity. There's a whole continuum for all of these new ways in which we're going to be living. But it's got to happen somehow. And we are going to be discovering Yeah, and I've been saying this to people who I've been talking to with Alt Media United. I'm like, listen, this is the future. You know, I got a couple friends that podcast as a hobby, and a lot of them are talking about, you know, oh, I already see this being my full-time job. You know, how do I, what do I do? You know, all the questions they have on how they can really, you know, optimize what they're doing with their podcast because they see the the future coming for them in their respective field, wherever it is. And they're like, Oh wow, I'm going to have a lot more time to do the things that I enjoy doing pretty soon, which is inspiring, you know, for me, someone who hasn't, you know, really reached that level of accomplishment, you know, I've worked jobs before, but I've never like, you know, I'm only 27. I don't have a career. And for this being my potential career, it's inspiring to, you know, see other people like, oh, wow, I got to stop what I'm doing and get in, in involved with this. You know, what that means for us is a, it comes with a double-edged sword, though. I mean, you know, I think what's really interesting about our conversations is how we navigate the double edge of, of either, you know, working within this system and not letting it uh, take over your life, you know, because you could equally like take this new change that's coming and it could, it could end in possibly, you know, you living even more in the matrix. Right. So that's kind of at least my hope that we navigate out of the matrix while still being able to use the tools that have been, you know, innovated by, yes, some negative interests, but also positive interests. You know, I think that's important too. Like technology as, you know, insidious as it could be, is also something that we're going to have to learn how to manage in order to use it against the ever-present forces of of negativity. I mean, it's a, that, that's the duality of this world, or maybe this age who knows maybe we're heading into another age that's what a recent guest told me that we're heading into another age where duality is not as important it's not as uh present so so a couple things there was there was a lot of there was there's a there's a there's a couple things to unpack there the double-edged sword i think that is that is the most having a recognition that there is a double-edged sword before us and when I say us, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm saying really for like each individual to think about what that double-edged sword is. And that was kind of my point with the comparison of these three kind of, of living arrangements or cities, the villages and, and Baltimore and St. Petersburg, because they are showing different facets of the same, of the same sort of hierarchical sort of system and all of like the, the the trappings of it there is undoubtedly there's undoubtedly a 
Pied Piper of culture, which is bringing the masses into something new. I mean, that that's, we always talk about that. That's the most evident thing in the world. It's like, okay, we're collapsing your world. All this is coming down, but don't worry. We got this new world for you. You're going to be able to go and have all these jobs. You can rent out your house and you're going to go and have the metaverse and you're going to get into Bitcoin and you're going to be able to go and start your career as a podcaster. You're going to be able to go and do all this. But, you know, this, we talk about this all the time. This system is the same, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's the same system. It's, it's the same underlying structure which is being applied somewhere new. And so the problems of that one, if one is looking at, at if one looks at these changes in terms of, oh, wow, this, this moving into this new way of, of working with technology, using that as an example, will solve all of these problems, which I, I can't stand right now. Like I no longer need to commute 50 minutes each way every day, and I don't have to deal with that. This would be such a relief. That's just been part of, of how it works. Like the industrial lev- revolution, like how people were working in the 1880s or the 1920s in factories, you know, that changed. There was a, there was a bit of a change during that time period, but the, 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 the concerns of those people went away and they became the concerns of what it was like to live in like the system in the 1950s and then to live in the system in the 1970s. So it's always this, this the, the modus operandi is when the, the medium of the control system of how you spend your time in order to support yourself as that, as the modus operandi is that you're always? It's always going to fucking be a. It's always going to be a grind. But the grind changes. The grind changes as the medium changes. So we're seeing this medium change from what it was 15 years ago, how people were working, or even 15 months ago, or maybe to where it's going. Well, yeah, a lot of the problems which you thought about in the past are going to be eradicated. But they're not thinking about that. Well, what's the next? What's the next problem which is being created to what I'm moving into? Because we can see through precedent that it's just moving from one step to another to another. But it's the same old game. So that's why, like recognizing this, this recognizing the 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 dual-edged sword is is really really significant. It's like, well, maybe you know, I'm not just reacting. Be like, well, I see my, my, my industry of what I was doing before is going away, but now they're offering me this one, so I'm going to go jump into this. I'm going to go jump into this. And, and I totally get it, like, like why you would do that, but then also having the foresight into recognizing, like, well, hold on, hold on, is where is this leading? Where is this going? And so to me at least, it beca- it's very clear that where the Pied Piper is, is bringing May is going to be something totally, you know, it's, it's, it's just the next version of it. So what is so unique about right now, which is so worldwide right now, is that everything is changing in a very, very drastic, drastic way. And that is offering new opportunities to explore what it is to be alive on Earth in a very new way. And we do not have, per se, a Pied Piper, which is telling us what that looks like. So it requires a bit of, of, of one, courage, and then two, imagination, in order to know how to move into something 
which you you do not which you do not have a picture in your mind of that. And what I think the best way to do that is more so recognizing the boundaries of what you know you don't want to get involved with. Now go now the last point I want to make is what you're saying with technology. Technology, in my opinion, is the is the crux, is a very, very big is a very big hook for what is going to bring people around. Because if you have been born during a time which all of this technology has already been out there. If you've been born and there was an internet, if you've been born and there was laptops, if you were born and there was wireless telephones. So that just seems normal. It seems totally fucking normal. So your idea of technology of being maybe not such a good thing is I got news for you. You've got a demented view. Each of us who's lived throughout a time period of change, we have a demented view when we are trying to understand life what it was before whatever technology was like, you know, what for me, I would say the same It would be applicable to like what black and white TV would be. So the point where I want to go with, if you do not at least begin mentally, so it all begins mentally, it all begins with recognizing this, this dual side, this double-edged sword. If you don't recognize what the technology cycle is, uh, then you're never going to end and say to yourself, at some point, I have to get off this. You are just going to keep being brought on deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until you are physically part of it. Because what happens? Oh, my phone is too old. I need to get the next one. Oh, my phone is too old and I can't see the app I want to do right now. Now I got to go and get the next one. Oh, the, the, the latest whiz bang, whatever is out. I got to get the next one. It's always the next one. It's always the next one. Look at your actual life. Look at what has happened. That is the modus operandi. So to me, because in my opinion, from what I see, from my unique perspective, is like, well, I don't think that we can, at least I can, and I don't think most people can actually say that I'm going to jump off technology right now. Some people are able to, some people are not. So there has to be a transitory transition strategy. And I think one of the things would have to be is recognizing, I mean, this is kind of where I am, is no more upgrades. Like, you know, recognizing, because that le there's going to have to be a point where, where, where you have to move off of the technology, but we're also moving to the place of well, what happens. How do you move around? How do you do anything um, without utilizing the technology. So that's kind of what we're, we're, we're going to be discovering. That's kind of what we're going to be creating now, isn't it? That's kind of the, that's the excitement of the whole thing. Like how are we able to still do the things that technology showed us what is possible, which is accessing information and connecting to people on the other part of, of Earth from you, but then how do we do that without the, the, the systems which have, they've been created because if we do not at least begin with an idea that we that we we can't live life without them, then they're never going to go away. Yeah, yeah, and it, it seems like you know it's becoming just a part of reality, whether you you know have a laptop, have a phone, or not. You know, like just to let's say live within the system, you know, let's say you want to 
find a new place to live. Well, you're going to need an email address, you know, <laughs> you're going to need a, a way to print something out. You're going to, you know, all of these different components come into play regardless, you know, cash used to be king, but I don't know. You, you're, you're 100% right. So like, let's go back and let's not talk so much about technology. Let's go look at all of um, the other systems. Like at one point there was no social security number. Like, do you know your social security number? Yeah. Yeah, of course you do. Everyone knows your social security number. But there was one support people in the United States, they didn't have social security numbers. Right. Yeah. And at some point that was introduced. And at some point, like the introduction was just kind of like, well, yeah, I guess it's for this. And, you know, it, it wasn't as, uni as uniformly known. But now it is such a part of culture. It's such a part of how we live. Like the idea of not having a social security number is like how can you be be part of it. How can you open up a bank account? How can you get your, how can you get a job? If you're going to get a job, you know, you need to give them the social security so that then they can go and create, create the right paper trail so that they can go and give the information on you for the money that they paid to the government. So the government knows that they can get their, their, their tribute. Like that's the, that's the paper trail. That's social security. That's how they link you. There was once upon a time, there was no income tax. There was once a point in time that people worked, and then, and Mark, you know, you had a, a long day's work, and here's your $100, and then you would get your $100, and then at some point, they're like, well, actually, no, now there's an income tax. I'm going to take a little bit of your $100, and I'm going to take five of those dollars, and you're going to keep the 95 There was once a point where the people had to say, like, whoa, how come a month ago you didn't have to do that? Now you have, now you're doing that. Like, that was a period of time which that was adopted into the minds of people, and now it just became regular. And if you were born into our society after social security numbers, after income tax, were already part of the game, you never even could imagine, oh yeah, there was once upon a time where we didn't need that. And so it's the same modus operandi, and it's these hooks. It's all of these hooks and these hooks. Well, if you want to be part of it, you're going to have to go and do this, 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 and this. And this is going to be the blockchain you took. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and, right? And this is the block I'm chaining you yeah. to. Look up. That's exactly what it is. Why do you want to become part of it? Because I'm going to give you your, your, your trinket so that you could go and have, you could have on fake glasses, you could be an imaginary Rodeo drive, and you could go and buy imaginary pearls, and you could put on your imaginary avatar and walk around imaginary cities. Right. Now you're on blockchain. Right. Like, and, and so what I'm saying is, like, we're at this interesting point where everyone can see the changes happening, and it's happening so drastically, and we're, we're so interconnected in a way we have not been before, and there's such a high degree of people who are seen through all of these Potemkin villages that if there has ever been a time, if someone was talking about like, you know, whenever social security numbers came out, like, we don't want to do this. This is, you know, the, the, the road to hell is, 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 is paved with good intentions. Don't do that. Like, you know, most people are like, ah, don't worry about it. But we have enough experience right now. We as the collective to be like, okay, we know how this game works. Now is the time. Now is our now is our window of opportunity. How long does this last? Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of just looking into the future which <laughs> you know, I don't know. Well, I don't think well, you can't. 
You can't. Like right. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole thing about the that's why the Pied Piper story is so compelling. Oh, you come over here. This is the safe place. This is what you do right now. Because what you knew before has been taken away. You don't really have any sort of clear vision of what it would look like if you do not go down the Pied Piper's path. And then the Pied Piper is like is promising you all of the world. Like there is absolutely no sort of shame for anyone who goes along with it because it's it's they're, they're being forced in a quarter. I I don't even look at it that way. I look at it more so. It's like of the amount of courage of the people who are willing to be like, okay, I'm going into the unknown and I know why I'm going into the unknown and I know what I'm trying to avoid. Right. It's kind of like Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. In a, in a little... What's the first line in Star Trek? It's like, you know, you go into the, I, I've never watched Star Trek, but I can hear in the back of my mind. There's like, I know they say a, they say something in the very beginning of like going into the world's unknown or something like that. Like that's what we're doing here. Uh, if you choose not to necessarily go down, go down the path, which is being laid out before us, you can't see into the future, but what you can see is the next right step. And you can understand the steps that you're taking. Like, okay, well, everything has a consequence. And, and I'll make this a little bit personal right now. I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road for, for Uncle Mike here. You know, my, the, the, the company which, which hosts my website, you know, which, which is probably how <clears throat> the majority of, of how I interface in a commercial way with, with the outer world. Like, you know, this is how I make the income. It comes through there. Like, it, it, it's expired. I'm like, do I really want to go and spend another couple hundred bucks to go and do this again? And, and, and thinking about what I want to take away. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put my energy there. I don't want to all these sort of different things. So I'm not renewing that. I'm probably going to come up with another sort of short-term, less involved with the internet way. In fact, the way I see it, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, your Alt Media United project, I think, is could become a really, really nice alternative for people to not necessarily have to have a website. Now, granted, that puts the pressure upon the person or the burden upon the person who's running all United media. But what it does is this is the way we are as a group. Like, okay, I'm going to take this on the chin right now by still having to take on this responsibility, but I'm freeing up these other people who are still connected and they're going to be able to disconnect some of those cords, which they had to that system. Right. Right. Well, yeah, we definitely need to make a few changes on the site, but yeah, no big deal. We can definitely fix that up so that people can still reach you. The Threadless store is still up. People can still get your merch. Your YouTube is still up. So I there's mean, still it, ways to get in touch with you. There's still ways to get in touch with me. And it, and, and it's, it's and I'm just kind of reflecting on my perspective. I see other people... I've seen other people, they, <laughs> I don't know what this says about me, but I, I've seen other, other people who have a little, who have somewhat of a platform and they talk about how, how important it is to, to stay in, in touch with their audience. And, and like, I love, I'm not saying anything bad about the audience, but that's not my MO. My MO isn't selling merchandise. My MO isn't like, you know, I want to make certain that I, 
that, that I have this. It's like, you know, I'm gonna, I want to go and speak and I want to share my truth and my perspectives, whatever that may be. And if people listen to it, I love it. And I love all the feedback. And, you know, it's more fun if you're talking that, that there's an audience. But, but that's not what, what it really is for me. And so I think this is part of what this, where we are right now is, is recognizing in every level on the person, on the personal level and on the, and on the identity level of, you know, what it is we're creating going forward and, and what, I mean, I, I'm making a video right now. I'm making a video right now about the trip to the villages and the and Crimea and all of that sort of stuff, the stuff we're talking about. And I'm talking about, and I'm framing up this, this video presentation about Potemkin villages. And Potemkin villages, as we talked about before, are these like false structures, these, these, these purposefully fake structures. And that's what a Potemkin represents. And it's a fake structure which is meant to give the illusion of something being better than what it is. And in this presentation, I'm talking about both cultural Potemkin villages, just like our culture to itself, you know, this constant telling, like, you know, everything is okay. And then, but there's also our culture because we've all been born into it and have been created by it. Everyone's carrying their own personal Potemkin villages. And most of them are, you know, we're blind to. And so like breaking those down and in order for us to move, into something else in order to move into something that does not fit into the world, this model, this ball consciousness, which has been going round and round and round. Like not only do we have to be able to see the cultural potential villages for what they are, we also have to see our individual potential villages for what they are, these false stories in which we're telling ourselves. And so that to me is, is as important that that's as linked to the technology as anything else. Well, connecting to Herkimer, I'm looking at a Potemkin village right now, so I'm a little bit unsure how to go about talking about this, but <laughs> a little flabbergasted. But yeah, this is this is something we've definitely touched on on the show a couple times. I'm excited to see the video, so maybe leave it. We'll leave it there and let people go check that video out to hear more about your thoughts on on that and how it fits together? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. So, you know, to give you a little bit of behind the scenes. I mean, actually, all of every every video presentation is there. It's It, it requires effort. It requires effort. And there's nothing wrong with effort. In fact, I would suggest that there's nothing more satisfying than effort. You know, when you're doing effort for the sake of why you're putting that effort in, whether that's, you know, the effort to take care of your body or whether that's the effort to create something which, which you want to create, there's something immensely satisfying in doing that. But this video, which this presentation, which I'm working on right now, has felt they've all required effort but this one feels a little bit different like it's a different i'm using a different muscle so i'm still very much in the process of getting it to where i want it to be and so what that means is like i begin to create the videos or i make the slides and then i might record it and then afterwards i'm like that that, that wasn't quite it i didn't quite feel that that i captured what i wanted to capture in that recording 
And so I'm probably in my third or fourth iteration in where it's going, but it's through this process of, of maybe recording it. And I haven't, I've never recorded a video four times before. It is in this process, which it is where, where I am right now. So I haven't had the video up or up yet, but I'm recognizing how if my process has changed, well, then other things have changed as well. One, probably being me, and then two, being the type of material which I'm, I'm presenting. So I'm, I'm excited about what it's going to be, and I'm still in the laboratory creating it. Right on. Well, that also fits into what I'm looking at here because in Herkimer, they're trying to build this stadium, it seems like, based around the story that I'm about to get into a little bit. But the reason I brought up the Potemkin villages being similar to this is because when you go to their website, they have this virtual walkthrough that was basically, you know, like a computer kind of looks like a early 2000s computer game quality graphics, but they have like this big giant basketball monument next to this stadium that they want to build. And it's built by a group called the Delta Engineers in Herkimer, New York. So refresh, go, go back to the, go, go back to this and the, the, the basketball and what you discovered about the history. Would you do that for me, please? Of course. So I got an email asking me to book someone on Tinfoil Hat. His name is Scott Flansberg. And I took the email. I uh, sent him a message, got in touch with him. And his story is connecting basketball's true origin to Herkimer, which I thought was funny because we had just talked about on I think episode 19 how our friend Ryan reached out talking about Springfield being the home of firsts basketball was invented there in Springfield and I've driven through there many times they have a you know basketball museum in Springfield Massachusetts so so can, can you walk me through then how there where's this disconnect like why if if basketball were in where, where are the stories different? Why would they say that basketball was, was invented by James Nye Smith versus whoever invented it in, in Herkimer? Like, uh, how, does, how does that happen? So according to an author named Frank J. Baslow, the Herkimer Nine was the first basketball team that basically innovated the game of basketball. They're the ones who added the rim and the backboard. So their claim to fame is what like... What the hell were they doing before a rim and a backboard? It was just called ball. So yeah, they're basically their claim is like, hey, we were actually doing basketball the right way longer than the people in Springfield. So it's actually Herkimer where the first game was played in the YMCA and the first coach... What's the time period? It was in the... 1890s in the 1890s yeah. and then what is said about about the the traditional when basketball was invented the traditional history of basketball when they say that would happen let's go look that up i do not have that off off hand here but i will look it up 
So I would imagine probably the year before or something. Well, and I would imagine considering that he reached out to our podcast, the, you know, tinfoil hat podcast that he has a, something that goes against what we're about to read on the Wikipedia. Right. Right. But, but and I want to hear that story. It's, just, cool. it's the comparison, it's the comparison. That's where we get like the real insight is right. like when we can compare one thing to another. Like that's what we were doing with the cities, and that's what we're doing right here. So, okay. So, so the, what, they, what, what does Wikipedia tell me? What, what do they tell me about, about... It says, the game of basketball as it's known today was created by Dr. James Nysmith in December 1891 in Springfield, Massachusetts to condition young athletes during cold months. He was an education instructor at the YMCA International Training School known as springfield college today and upon the request of his boss naismith was tasked to create an indoor sport game to help athletes keep in shape in cold weather it consisted of peach baskets and soccer style balls he published 13 rules for the new game he divided his class of 18 into two teams of nine players each and set about to teach them the basics of his new game the objective of the game was to throw the basketball into the fruit baskets nailed to the lower railing of the gym balcony every time a point was scored the game was halted so the janitor could bring out a ladder and retrieve the ball so they invented basketball and i guess the claim maybe is that hey these guys were just literally putting a ball in a basket and we actually you know did it the right way earlier than them but yeah that's so what what can you go into a dr nia smith page and just tell me a little bit about his early childhood that's a great question yeah let's go and look up mr james Nysmith. Nysmith was born on november 6 1861 in almont province of Ontario, now part of the Mississippi Mills, Ontario, Canada, to Scottish parents. He never had a middle name and signed his name with an A. He was gifted. What, what, what I'm interested in is like, are his parents or family, is there anyone of note? And then we want to go and look at what organizations he was associated with. Okay. And where he went to school. Because I'm certain they're giving you like many, many paragraphs and I don't, I, we don't want to read through all of those. He went to McGill University in Montreal. It says that he was orphaned in his early life, and he lived with his aunt and uncle for many years and attended grade school at locally where he grew up. But then he went on to McGill University, and that's where it seems like he really got interested in sports because then he went on to live in Springfield, Massachusetts, having the job that he did at the YMCA International Training School. So he had a BA in physical education and then let's see if he has is there anything else of note in his in his in his biography well they're pretty much talking about the invention of basketball springfield college the university of kansas was he the president of the school was he was anything like that Hmm. he was a physical director of a training program doesn't look like he, I mean, he had a doctorate in physical education, but no, it doesn't say anything gotcha. about that. He went on I'm to work with the, Ooh, okay. he he, went on to work with the University of Kansas, and that's where 
they were it seems like they had been kind of making it its way around the globe and it was becoming more and more popular at the time so they were this is like considered the birth of the big 12 and this is totally out of my league because i don't know anything the first thing about basketball but but yeah i guess this is very important to the history of college basketball as well in the university of kansas whatever he did there and he became the first basketball coach of the university of kansas and he's the only losing coach in kansas's history ironically interesting Um, all right but yeah then the legacy has i guess some more maybe interesting information he wrote 13 rules of the sport and the nba rule book contains 66 pages for all the gematria people out there but yeah i i don't know if there's anything really as far as associations with anybody other than the ymca no it doesn't look like that i mean university uh, of kansas was a Presbyterian might... minister he was also remembered as a freemason he is so well, yeah so this is all in the personal section so i mean there are a lot of people are freemasons i'm not saying like that that's necessarily so the reason i'm i'm kind of fishing for this is because there's a real similarity to baseball and so the baseball story the baseball story and i don't know if, you know i don't know how deep this goes i'm just kind of spitballing right now on the punch is is that with baseball abner doubleday was given the was given the the credit for inventing baseball and the matter is he didn't invent baseball, but that was more, he was more of a figurehead. And when you go and you look into Abner Doubleday's history, you can go and see like, okay, this is what this, this symbol is, which baseball is connected. And so it doesn't really sound like uh, I was seeing if Nia Smith kind of had anything like that as well, if that was fitting in. But the thing which is interesting is, is it Barry Fell? I think it's Barry Fell or Barry Kent. I always get him confused. He's the guy who has written extensively about the similarities between some of the uh, Algonquin words and the um, Gaelic words. And he also had gone on and written about how baseball is actually can be traced back to games that were played. And I, I want to say he used it in his example, like more in the Southwest of people thousands of years ago. Like baseball is this, like, you know, it's been played here on this continent for a very, very long time. This idea of a bat and a ball and bases and stuff like that. And we can say the same thing with, with basketball, because in a very general sense, like, you know, when you describe basketball and a ball through a hoop, it, it kind of fits, at least, in, I'm not an expert in this, but, but the general Aztec ball game is what they called it. And if you've ever seen at least representations of what that court looks like, it looks a lot like a basketball court. It looks kind of like a combination of a basketball court and a hockey rink, meaning you could go behind it. But, like, there's this similarity of these, these, older, these older games these older games and then being reinvented and then repackaged and then sold as new, you know, it's the guns and villages, I guess. Mm, right. I was just trying to flip to a page here. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was just reading oh. in secrets. Go ahead. Oh, go on. What, what, were you going to say something about basketball? Or were you going to go switch gears? No, no about ball. Yeah. And what you're referring to, because Michael Hoffman mentions it on a, 
page 82, he says, The reader will grasp that the special sittings of America Mystica resemble a kind of ritual game, specifically a ball game. And he makes a comparison to the Aztec and Mayas, what he calls a headbanger's ball, where they would, you know, decapitate. Yeah, use a human head. Yeah, I was just reading that before we got on the call. So, yeah. Did you think about that with basketball? I was thinking of it more in terms of baseball because he uses the term, you know, kind of like, so rethink the term, take me out to the old ball game, right? That was kind of the the insinuation he was making. But then he also compares tennis somehow in this too, where tennis, the oath of the tennis court was taken on June 17th, 1789. It's one of the many sentences in this book where he'll just make a reference to something and then move on to his ongoing point but there's a lot of little pieces like that where it's just like what does he mean by the tennis court was taken he talks about how it's connected to robespierre and if you could i would if you could send me the uh, a picture of that passage about the tennis because i'm going to send that to someone who i know is going to find that very interesting you should go look and see what the aztec ball court looks like if you're not familiar with what that looks like okay am i uh, can i guess that you're going to send this to emily moyer that's who i'm going to send it to. <laughs> how is uh how is i've been watching the glass bead game as she's been releasing that for free the older episodes very interesting. Yeah, and we always go back to tennis. We had a really big one with tennis uh, the other day, so she's going to probably love that that passage. So, so it, it it it's interesting when you go and you see the, the the that ball game which you were just reading about. When did you read that? Last week? No, I was just reading that today. You know, even today. So that ties in so directly. You'll go and see the similarities are undeniable to to basketball, which were being said was like invented with like peach baskets. Like no one, no one before has ever thought to go and throw a ball through a hoop before. And like, you know, that is the story which we're being told. And what, what, what's interesting. So this is where I kind of had like that, that I, I started going down a path that right after I was done talking about, about Abner Doubleday, it, it slipped my mind about the whole reason why we're talking about this to begin with is that they're saying, no, well, we're, we're really going to credit. We're really going to credit Herkimer, Herkimer as as the true introduction of, of this basketball game to within the American public, and that's exactly. It's almost it's the opposite. It's going the other direction, where it's, where it was done through a fake story with with Abner Doubleday that they connected baseball to the Susquehanna. But now they're doing it on the opposite, saying, well, actually, it's the secret, the, the story no one knows about. It was, it was invented in Herkimer. And, and it's one and the same. It's, just, it's tying these two ancient games that have been played in North America and who knows where else um, back to that same location. Right. That same sort of like body of water. And to me, the Herkimer Diamond and, and the Susquehanna River they they're almost one of the same. Right. It's because of the location of the Did you step away from your phone or something? You sound like you you're very far away from the mic all of a sudden. All right. How about now? You're good. Yeah. Okay. Ab- absolutely. I, I think, you know, and that's what I was thinking about when this 
came my way because I'm like, oh, here's another connection. I think with this case, it's folks in Herkimer who maybe want to drum up some business to their town and like basketball and and found out about this story and now they're trying to, you know, get the story out there. But it definitely seems like maybe that was the case where they said, okay, we, we need to <laughs> delete this connection point so that people connect it to James Naismith and then they're not all wondering why all these sports are all born on the Susquehanna River. Or at least linked, right. at least linked, at least linked to it in this way. And I mean, realistically, no one's going to make that sort of connection besides me, you, or anyone else who finds this sort of stuff interesting. And I don't think by any stretch of the imagination this was done as like some sort of, of, of conscious sort of like, okay, this is di- our diabolical plan as much as we're seeing like, this is an underlying structure of reality. Like, you know, the, you're probably right on in the fact that some people are doing this to strum up some interest in Herkimer, New York, and that's where they had this impetus to go and, and do this, but there's something deeper than that. What causes those impetuses? You know, who hears them and that sort of stuff. That's, that's to me where I believe that, the, that this takes place, this type of linking up of these stories. Right. Well, it's interesting that this guy that sent the email, he's known as the world Guinness World Record holder as the human calculator. So I don't know if I didn't realize that who this was until I just looked at the website here. But Scott is known worldwide as the human calculator and is listed in the Guinness World Book of Records as the fastest human calculator. He's a best-selling author and host of a TV show on the History Channel. So this is one of the gentlemen that is proposing this, you know, hidden history of basketball connecting to Herkimer, the human calculator. What's his name again? Scott Flansburg. Oh, and that was the guy, is that the guy who, who and he emailed is going me. on? Yep. He's the one who emailed you, okay. So he's involved with the product or the project. Right. I was thinking he was like a researcher. So, okay, how do I spell his last name? F-L-A-N. F-A-L-N. No, F-L-A-N-S-B-U-R-G. Flansburg. Scott Flansburg. Right. Or you can type in Herkimer9.org. All right, all right. So, so... Do you have more to go and talk or share about that? Well, I just thought that was fascinating that this guy is the guy who's involved too. I mean, he's the Guinness Book of World Record holder, the fastest human calculator. It'd be one thing if he was like the world's best juggler or like, you know, he like did a car stunt, you know, over a huge jump. But uh, the fastest human calculator, I feel like that kind of fits in somehow to what we talk about. I'm not quite a mathematician. I'm not saying that you are either, but I think that's just psychologically like what I wonder what it takes. I, I'm curious to to hear, you know, if that comes up. I'm going to tell Sam about it and have him ask him, but uh, yeah. I'm I'm reading about him right now and I tend to agree with you. Anytime, well, I, I mean, well, where I, I would find the guy who's the world's greatest juggler just as interesting as well, but anytime you in 
you see a whatever the skill would be carried out to its its most extreme there's something interesting there regardless of whatever that would be so and then by looking at what the thing is like you know it gives it gives insight as to the nature of the consciousness of the individual so you're absolutely right like to be able to be known as the human calculator and to be so amazing with with mental math and his mind is obviously working in a way which other minds don't work or because everyone else would be able to do that. So, yeah, to bring that into this, this story as the guy who, who is, is kind of bringing this out is fascinating. I see that he is, he's from originally from, from Herkimer, New York. It doesn't say he, and he still lives there. So that's, that linkage also ties in. Something so, okay. in the water. I would say so. I would say so. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's all I really have. I mean, this guy seems interesting. He teaches people how they can become, you know, mental math magicians themselves. So that's cool. So what is mental math? What do you think that, what is that? Like take it away from like being like, like the, the literal thing, the like describe, oh, you can, you can do arithmetic really well in your mind. What is that actual representation of? Uh, so there has to, there has to be a, a, a certain level of mental clarity. You right. have to be able to hold like all of the things that, that require memory. You know, this isn't exactly memory per se, but it's closer to that part of the functioning mind. Let's say you, like cognition or processing processing there you go it's a, it's it's a a processing in a very very kind of linear way because numbers work particularly arithmetic well this connects it, to oh sorry go ahead well it works in 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 such a way where the rules are very very in a way simple and so to be able to go and then take those rules. But what I mean by simple is like, they're, they're not that many. It's like, you know, when you add a seven to a three, it becomes a 10, let's say, you know, it's a, like you, and when 10, any number that comes to 10, like those, those rules are, are, they're, they're easy to grasp. And then to be able to take that on such a grand scale and to make order and for that to be simple for this, for this mind. I mean, that's what that consciousness is, is generally like, you know, it's, it's showing a capability of, of being able to do. And then you go and you look and you say, like, what else in the natural world or any of the world, where do we see that same sort of that consciousness or that, that, that capability? And that's where uh, it starts to get really interesting from that. Mm. But you were going to say something. Well, yeah, it, it connects to, I'm just realizing this now, it connects to something I heard Marty Leeds talking about on a podcast that recently came out on the higher side chats about vegesimal or a 20 base numeral system and how children in certain countries where they teach them how to count in vegesimal form, they use their, their, they literally use their fingers and toes to help them do these really complex or maybe seeming complex to us because we weren't trained this way as kids, these really complex mathematical equations because they're they're using sort of their physical memory, which is some sort of aware of through martial arts. We've talked about this before off air as well. And, you know, it base 20, I think that is also how the Mayans use their calendar too. So like they Correct. base their calendar off of that. So 
it's it's very interesting. Tara's been getting into the Mayan calendar, so a little bit of a synchronicity. But I would imagine maybe that Scott Flanberg uses something similar to this, like some sort of... Uh, I would agree with you completely, and I love how you brought it to the physical body. And yeah, so the... the the Mayans, the 20 is significant and because it's, and it makes natural sense because they put it in human scale because we have 20 digits, you know, so they can code. And the other number, and, and the sun goes in a 20 count, and then the moon goes in a 13 count, and that's because there are 13 primary joints of the human body. You've got seven on both sides, wrist, knee, hip elbow, wrist, shoulder, and then you have the neck, which will give you the 13th one. But where I want to go with this is like, you know, when I was kind of describing that before, I was talking about it purely as a, a mental construct. But what you're suggesting is like, well, is we, have with, we have within our, our body a certain sort of like base numerical or arithmetic system. And you use, you use, this, this Marty Leeds example, and I would think, you know, who better to talk about esoteric understanding of numbers than Marty Leeds? Right. Like, that, take that, like, like, deeper than just there being a base 20 mathematical system. Like, the entire system, like, uh, imagine a system which, which your, your thinking mind is so linked in with your, with your body calculator that these calculations are just simple. Like he is a demonstration of like, and it probably is, is for whatever reason, maybe being born on top of Herkimer has enabled this like more natural sort of way of being able to like understand number and to do, and to do arithmetic and then take that to a level. Like, well, why does that matter other than doing like impressive math problems? Like going back to where we started our conversation today about moving off of technology. And when I, I, I say that there has to be a point where we, even if it's just an idea that we move off of the internet and all of these technologies that just want to be more and more built new hardware, new software, new all of this sort of stuff, but something's got to show itself. But I don't know what that's going to be. So now we go and we're looking at this and we're, we're, we're playing around with the idea, but it really doesn't sound like that far-fetched of an idea of like, yeah, within the human body is the capability of working with numbers in a very, very natural way where we can do things which seem so far beyond what we can think of we're capable of doing. And maybe that has to do with how we connect on this deeper level because all computers are, are, are really algorithms anyway, right? So it has, it's not exactly the same as arithmetic, I suppose, but there's a numerical aspect. You also mentioned this before right. of, of moving out of the, moving out of the dual mindset, the ones and the zeros, the dual age, you know, the duality age. And so, you know, is this, is this an idea? Like I'm not, so, I'm not offering a solution. I'm offering like, this is like a, a, a jumping off point for imagination of like, well, if that's how the body potentially works that easily with like complex numbers, like, you know, how else, and if, if, if technology is basically built upon complex numbers, which we as human beings are unable to really understand, well, maybe it's just because we're looking at it the wrong way. And maybe like there's another base system where we are able to go and do, you know, 
telepathy and accessing information and Akashic records, all of this kind of new agey sort of stuff is much more tangible and much more linear than, than what we've ever been given credited to. That's kind of where my mind goes when we're talking about this stuff. Mm, right. Well, and that's very much in line with what you've said you're hoping to go into further, which is, you know, people, examples of people who are creating things outside of the traditional system, right? Yeah. It's funny, I had a guy reach out to me recently to help him out with his podcast, and he's telling me, you know, I work in construction, and I think a lot of guys in construction ought to have their own podcast. And I'm like, oh, that sounds familiar. Weren't we just talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mike? How you have all these folks that are coming together, you know, who have these skills in, in construction, you know? And uh, go ahead. Well, absolutely. No, keep on talking. Keep on talking. I was going to say, and, and I think that's very promising. You know, we're we're reaching that audience of people who, you know, not anything against maybe the delivery drivers. I'm speaking for them because that's the cloth I'm cut from. <laughs> that's the primary way I've made money since high school. But, you know, it's promising to, to hear that there's guys out there doing, you know, things like stonemasonry, things like, you know, um, actually knowing and look at me floundering for an answer because I, I don't know the first thing about building a house, but, you know, carpenters and everyone else involved. I'm excited to hear more people with those trades getting interested in this type of podcast. You know, I'm sure there's plenty that are interested in conspiracy, but I feel like what we're talking about is more than just conspiracy. It's, it's, it's a solutions-oriented philosophical discussion without boundaries and i think a lot of times in our culture whenever you have a solutions based conversation it's boxed within academia and everything that they have you know or it's boxed within a corporation and everything that's within that box or it's boxed within big media and all the propaganda that's there right so here we're talking about real solutions with a real mindset you know and that's really, it's really inspiring to, to feel, you know, responses like the one you shared with me when people are saying, Hey, what you guys are doing is really helping me out. Cause they're just working, you know, doing their thing. They'd rather listen to a conversation like this in the freaking radio, you know, so more power to them. I'm, I'm really so pumped I, to get messages I, 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 like that. I want to go back two minutes ago. That 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 little uh, soliloquy, which 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 you just shared with us, that was so friggin' beautiful. You got to go re-listen to what you just said, <laughs> because there were some lines in there that were that was spectacular. So I want to go and though and 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 add to what you said. You're talking about the confines of of academia, the confines of of of, of corporation or what have you. What I think that or at least how I'm, I'm trying to approach this conversation, or at least what I do, is I'm bringing it up uh, to the confines of culture and imagination. I mean, that's the whole thing with, like, we, we, we can't have technology. Like, this is – if, if you can't realize that the idea that you're going to have to buy a new computer in two years and there's, that it will never end, that this thing which we're all pointing at, we're saying, oh, look, look, this is not right, that if you don't realize that – 
if you don't move away from the systems that need to constantly be regenerated, which then require like everything to go and, and get the raw materials and then to ship it out to you and the processing of all of that. And that's, if you don't realize that that is the confines, like it's just going to be the same thing. So that when we talk that I, we're, we're talking about, it's a solution based philosophy because I don't know what the, these solutions are, but we're beginning to talk about them or have the freedom to talk about them. And what I'm hoping I'm also adding to it with, with the experience I'm having here, like, like to actually see what it looks like to keep on pushing that envelope. So it's not just philosophical ideas of how to think about solutions outside of cultural uh, confines, but then this is what it kind of looks like as we move through it. And it's resonating. It resonates with people who are not limited to a, a cultural box because it's, it is resonating with only one type of person, consciousness. You either like the shit or you don't. This either, makes you, this either inspires you or makes you think or it doesn't. And for the people who it doesn't, well, that's fine. But the people who this is, like who you're talking about, like the, the people we get the emails from, we get them from all of these different, all of these different quote unquote demographics. The demographic is just a box, a con culturally defined confine. But where we see this uniform notion is like, yeah, I'm totally open to this. I see the problem and like, I don't know what the solution is, but I like the idea of exploring it. And this is how we move. This is how it expands. Absolutely. And even uh, wilder or maybe even more promising is Orgone. Have you, are you, how familiar are you with Orgone? Awesome. Okay. So then I shouldn't have to tell you too much about it, but I recently had Mitch, the Orgone donor on my podcast, and he was kind enough to gift me some Orgone and these devices that he calls earth pipes. And I don't know if you're familiar with Mitch's like sort of mission with Orgone, but he uses them to bust towers, right? Allegedly, this is what the practice is called. But really all it is is planting these Orgone devices, just pieces of Orgone built in a special way in the ground within a certain radius of things like 5G towers, phone towers, Nexrad systems, and all the rest of these polluting smog devices. So my question to you as the Susquehanna alchemist is, do you think that we can use earth pipes and orgone to, I don't know, free the energy of the Susquehanna River? Is that, is that possible? Is that something you think we should do, put our energy into? I can't imagine why, why, why you wouldn't. I mean, and I, and I get... I don't think I'm going to do that. Like that's, that's, that's <laughs> well, not my hot button. But what I do like is, is the recognition of like, like this, this speaks to me and I want to go do it. And I know why I'm doing it. And I understand like, like the, the whole sort of thing. Like, I think that like, if that speaks to you or that speaks to anyone else, I'd say definitely like anything like that. Well, here's, here's we are, why we're in a transitory stage. We need to do and try everything. And we need to understand why we're doing it and why we're trying it and how does it fit into the greater, like, you know, how does, how does this fit into the, the cultural matrix? And if anyone has that level of awareness, you know, you could have that level of awareness and come to different conclusions, you know, and that's for the individual to do. 
But like when anyone who can bring that level of awareness to the actions which they're doing, understanding the environment and and what they do within it. When I say the environment, I just mean like living here at this time. Like I think that's 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 the one thing which which the only thing we can do. And it's got to be individualistic, internally driven, and you know why you're doing it. Right. And I think that's the greatest thing we could do. Agreed. And I didn't bring that up to put you on the spot to take up the mantle uh, of that mission, but I figure there are people out there listening who might like to gift the natural spaces near them and whether or not they're going to do that on the Susquehanna. I think, you know, why I wanted to bring this up with you is because you know this area pretty intimately. And if you know, you were to go out on that mission to Orgone, the Susquehanna, would there be an area that you would focus on? Would it be maybe that, you know, three-way point where the two branches meet and the main branch is created? Would it be, you know, next to Three Mile Island? Would it, you know, where does your mind go for, like... All right, all right, all right. That's an interesting question. So I'll give you my... my this. You know, this is just my thought as it relates to this. And when I say this, we're talking about looking at subtle energies and stuff like that and, and, and how we interact. And we're also talking about specifically with the Susquehanna River. From my, from my perspective, I think the most, the most important thing is if you want to have a connection with the Susquehanna River, it is a human interaction. It is a human interaction. Like, as you kind of described, Orgone, particularly with, with the 5G towers, like, that's, a, that's the right fit. Like, Orgone made of, like, you know, the, the, all of the, the, the kind of the pieces of the machine, like the metal scraps and, like, the, the resin. And, like, it requires the – like, it's, it's a, a composting of culture. Like, that's how I look at Orgone. Like it's literally, but it, like not, it, it, it's utilizing the own waste products of the culture to heal the culture. Like, and so it would make sense that you would put it on or to a tower, to something which is being created by the culture, which is hurting the environment. Like that seems to me to be the right fit as it relates to something which is the Susquehanna River. So the, again, this is my opinion, and, and I, I keep saying that because I don't want to come across by saying, like, this This is the way it is, but I'm really kind of solid in my own self with, like, this is the way how I see it. Technology and all that sort of stuff, like, it, it, it's whatever this earth thing is, it ain't going to last. Something's going to happen, and it all goes away, and then, and then earth, whatever earth is, regenerates itself. You know, that's why we see the stuff like, you know, buried in it. Like it, 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 that's just the nature of what, what the material baseline reality realm is. That is bigger than anything we can do. I do not buy for a moment that we destroy the earth, that we can kill the earth. Now, I think that we could do a really shitty job and we should live in harmony with the earth. But I think it's like, I, that's my opinion. Well, so when I look at this, well, let, let me just finish by saying that. Sorry. Because when I look at the Susquehanna River, like I look at it like that. The Susquehanna River doesn't need my help. I need its help. And so when I go to it, but what the Susquehanna River wants is it wants to connect with humanity. And what a human is, is emotion, emotion and physicality. And so to me, to make just any voyage to the Susquehanna River, you get your feet in it. If you go and like you bring like emotion to it, if you bring it like with the ceremony, 
if someone really is it, in my opinion, if that's what you want to connect with the with the Susquehanna, you bring your humanity because that is the link which which I want to see created is is or what I think would, would really benefits us because the other stuff is going to collapse upon itself. But what we need to do is create a feedback loop into that baseline reality. And so where's the, the orgo? Like I, like I love the intention and I see its place. And maybe if you go and say like, oh, look, there's a 5G tower like on the Susquehanna. Okay, that makes total perfect sense. But if you really, if your motivation is like, what do I do something specifically as the energy of the Susquehanna River? It is the human element, the remembering it as like this thing I can't understand and this thing I can understand through mythology and story and this thing I can understand as what it does to, to the, the natural world and this other this thing I can understand as something I want to take care of and not pollute, like all of those sort of things. So that's my thought. Now, I got, it sounded like I got you a little spun up when I said no. uh, I don't think that we could kill the earth. Yeah, no, I was going to say it's our imperative to live in harmony with the earth because it's the earth's nature to destroy us. I was, yeah, I was just like, as Sam Tripoli likes to say, screaming in agreement with you because, yeah, I think that the earth is ultimately, you know, going to take us all back into it. I mean, it kind of, you brought to mind when we were on the Susquehanna and we we're looking at the the rocks there and we're finding all those weird rocks and one of them, I'm like, geez, this is like... This is like a fossil, you know, like this has got to be from another time. And, you know, ironically, somebody might find a USB drive in the distant future that's been calcified and turned into a turned into a, you know, a stone. And that'll be where the podcast, the last instance of the podcast on that on that I mean, USB it, drive. It, 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 it's kind of, it's. I mean, who knows what what's real and what's not? But but we see we if if you've looked at like you know unexplained phenomenon, you've seen like you know we found this perfect steel ball embedded in a million five hundred million year old stone, like all these things that don't make sense. Mm, and so like, that's kind of like what you're talking about, like with the USB, like you know about 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 finding something from our modern time, like you know sometime in the future, and people are like wow, look at that, but. All of the stuff which we supposedly find from the ancient, ancient past nowadays, like that was all stone. That was all concrete. That was all, that was all something which could last the length of time. This period which we're in right now is it was, it was designed to, to, to implode no matter what. Like we don't have any – look around your town, your neighborhood, your community. What's going to last a thousand years? You know, so it's like they even built. That's one of the reasons I say like this is all that this is all going to collapse anyway because it's always been designed to not be to be temporary. Whatever whatever the the whole Earth thing is, it's like we can see that what we're in right now it can't last very long, or at least on the timelines we've been told that exist here. But the baseline it stays, and when we go and we look at these things, like what what has stuck around these Herkimer diamonds, those stuck around. What about the Susquehanna River? And so it's, it's, it's being able to, what I think the most, what, what I think is so important is that we do create that feedback loop to the baseline reality. And unless, I mean, I guess there's a place to go and live on that, that incredibly in harmony with the earth and you are living like how you imagine someone who lived, who, who lived 100%, 10,000 years ago would live a hunter gatherer. But I think we can also do that in a transitory stage right now, but we have to go and 
have that, not just like an appreciation for the environment because it's the right thing to do, but it's because this is what we are. We are, I say this a lot, like if you're born into a culture, like you can't help it. You're part of that culture, but that's only like a, a partial truth. The bigger truth is we are born of the earth. You are the earth. That's not like, you know, that isn't kind of, that isn't, I'm not being figurative there. That's what we are. And so the more we connect on all of the different levels, it's, it's, we create that feedback loop and that's the strongest one. That's how we, that's, that's where the, that's where we strengthen the synchronicity. That's where we strengthen the moving through without having a plan. All right. Well, you left me with a lot of inspiration, Mike. I'm trying to trying to look into the Connecticut River deeper, and you just gave us all a lot to work with as far as us geo, geography sleuthers out there looking into maps and looking into history and mythology, you know. Yeah, definitely. And then getting your feet feet and getting your feet wet. You got to do it all. You're doing a great job. This was a lot of fun, Mark. I, we covered a lot of different stuff today. Indeed. Well, thank you, folks, for tuning in. Thank you, Mike, for joining me. And have a great moment wherever you are in the now. Peace.